Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Bring, bring it back. Welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Dan, Arsenal fan. You can get me on Twitter at the underscore jersey underscore fits. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie, head soccer at Burnley. I write the None and Ever newsletter, which goes out by a Substack every Monday, and unless you're particularly interested in Burnley, you probably won't care enough to subscribe, but you can do it anywhere. Thank you. I would recommend doing it anyway. Also, you'll probably see some of the guests that come on the show writing over there. So definitely worth looking at. And Jamie, of course, brilliant as ever. Um, Something that wasn't particularly brilliant today was Manchester United's performance against Liverpool. It ended up being a 5-0 defeat at home. Very embarrassing. All of the memes and tweets, of course, coincided with that match and its its final whistle. Uh, but I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on this because everybody's heads immediately went to, what does this mean for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? So I was just curious from you guys, how much of the defeat you think is in his hands and if this might have been kind of the beginning of the end here for Solskjaer? Um, I mean, I don't. if it's the end, I don't think it's the beginning. Um, it's... I don't know how much this individual result is on Solskjaer because they're not the better team, but also like Manchester United not just being a better team is on Solskjaer. Um, like they spent a lot of money. They have a lot of talent. I know their defensive midfield is not amazing with Fred and McTominay. I know they're missing Varane. I know Sancho hasn't started his career great, but like they should be a better team than they are. Um, maybe not on Liverpool's level. Liverpool are one of the best teams we've seen in Premier League history, but uh, like they should beat. They should not be getting beat 5-0. And like reason like that was a reasonable scoreline for performance. They were just not they were six levels below Liverpool today. Um and that shouldn't be happening. Um should should they and at home as well at Old Trafford. Should they be beating Liverpool? That's a bit that's not so clear, but like this shouldn't be happening. Um and they should just be a better team where this shouldn't even be conceivable, um, much less actually happening. Yeah, I mean, I agree with what Dan's just said, but um, it's a shocking result because if one big boy loses 5-0 at home to another big boy, it's always a shocking result. But Mm. anyone who's watched Manchester United recently, it's not a shocking result, is it? It's like, I think Gary Neville was on TV over here and he basically said "This, this has been coming. If you watch Manchester United regularly, this has been coming. As soon as they came up against a good team who could expose their weaknesses and really show Manchester United to be what Manchester United are right now, this was just going to happen. Um, I think it's right to say it's it's important to highlight how good Liverpool are as well. This is still the same team without Sadio Mane today, who was only on the bench. Still the same team that won the title easily two years ago. 
Um, obviously, last year disrupted by injuries, but it's still a very, very good team. Um, but United are just a shambles, and it's clear for me it's it's mainly Solskjaer's fault at this point. You can't be in charge of a team for three years and have a result like that happen and it not be your fault. Um, if it was a one-off, then you could probably explain it, but it's not. Manchester United defend like this every week now, and they mm. can't rely on Cristiano Ronaldo to do Cristiano Ronaldo things every week and do headers in the last minute. is just not going to work all the time. Um, it was 4-0 it was at half-time today. And that still flattered Manchester United. I, it could have been six. It could have been seven. Um, after Pogba got sent off in the second half, if Liverpool really wanted to make it like an all-time embarrassment rather than just a, a minor, major humiliation, they could have won 10-0. They could have won 12-0. Liverpool decided to stop trying to score with 20 minutes left. 5-0 flattered Manchester United. Um, and I think the question we're going to come back to, Kev, is does Solskjaer survive a result like this? I think, personally, he's lucky to still be in charge. If he's still in charge for the next game, that's a dereliction of duty from the owners. Yeah. I know the owners at United are basically absent, but you cannot lose 5-0 to a rival like that and keep your job. You just can't. Manchester United's team is top-heavy. They've got world-class attackers. The defence that, on paper, if everyone's fit, is good. The midfield is a total absence. Um, and I, I think it, it lies at Solskjaer's door. He's had enough transfer windows to try and fix it now. He's brought in Jadon Sancho at, what, £70, £80 million. Pounds, mm. Doesn't get a game. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo doesn't solve the issues with that team. Varane's obviously out now. But the, the defence is a defence of a team that does no work on defence on the training ground. And it has to be only gone to Solskjaer's fault. There's no excuse in it at this point. Yeah, it sounds like both of you uh, agree that this is not uh, <laughs> the beginning of the end. This might indeed be the end. You mentioned it might be a dereliction of duty by the ownership of who's still in charge next Sunday. What do we think the likelihood is that he is? Because they have shown a lot of patience with him in the past after some pretty rough results. Um, it's I, I think it's kind of high. I, I I don't know. The betting odds have him as reasonable to get sacked soon, but you know, you have just worked so outside the normal realm of how teams handle their managers for so long that it's kind of like when it happens, no one will be surprised but until it actually happens. I'm not going to really expect it just because like they've already gone through so much garbage and spent so much money that it's at this point, it's like where I have no idea what is going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back because there have already been so many straws that it's like, I don't know. I know it's going to happen at some point, but I don't know if this is going to be it. I don't know if they're going to have, they're going to be like, well, you got to give him time. He's oh, he's the club legend and he has, you know, it's project something, presumably. I don't really know. Um, but they have gone so far that I just, I, I don't know what is actually going to be the, the breaking point for them. So um, if he's sacked tomorrow, I won't be surprised. But if he's in charge next week, I won't be either. Um, they've just been so, so lax when it comes to Solskjaer that um, at this point, nothing will surprise me. And it, as far as actually answering the question, giving uh, likelihood, I think it's probably more likely he's in charge than he's not. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think the the point is that they've shown so much patience already. Dan's right. It's like 
at what point does the patience run out? Like, how bad does it have to get? Um, and if you look at the league table, it's not that bad, but it's still early days in the season. And the league table, I wouldn't say it lies, but I don't know if it's an accurate representation. Of, it does lie. It often lies. Well, it certainly lied for Arsenal last season, what, finishing eighth mm-hmm. or whatever it was, which is ludicrous. There should have been about 14. <laughs> but, sorry, I digress. Uh, but yeah, I think like you can look at some things and United aren't too bad, but there's statistics coming up on, on TV over here in the UK on Sky Sports and they were rock bottom for tackles per game, rock bottom for another defensive stat. For clean sheets, they were 18. And I think, like, for some of them, like, tackles per game, like Man City are probably quite low for that because they have the ball all the time. They don't have to defend. But this United team is set up to counter-attack, right? That's as much as there is a, a tactical plan from Solskjaer in United. They're set up to counter-attack. They've got Pace on the break, Greenwood, Sancho, Rashford, Bruno. These are all players who are going to kill you on the break. That's the plan. As far as I can see it, if there's a plan, that's the plan, right? To play on the counter, you need a solid defence. And their defence is just a shambles. Like Luke Shaw and Harry Maguire. These are two players. Half of England's defence that got to the final of the Euros mm. this summer. They're not bad players. They're made to look like amateurs in that Manchester United team because there's no protection from the defence. The attack doesn't defend from the front. There's no pressing like Manchester City do, like Liverpool do, like basically any good team does now. There's no pressing, no coherent plan to press. So Liverpool's first goal today, for example, I think one of the United attackers went to press. No one backed it up. So there's huge gaps. Any good team will just cut through you in two, three passes. That's exactly what Liverpool did. And how how much more time can you give all you on a social? Like I said, it's not the first time this has happened. They had the, the heavy defeat to Spurs. They've got a long list of embarrassing performances, results in Europe. A club the size of Manchester United should not be having the issues in Europe that they have on the social. You can't get by with flukes like the result in Paris where they had the dodgy Marcus Rashford penalty at the end for a, a non-handball. It feels like he's had the rub of the green and still coming out not on top. Yeah. I've said this for a long time. He's he's not a manager of any reputation or repute. Oh, you're on a social. They basically brought him in as a mascot, someone to be, someone who knows the club, try and infuse the club's values on the team. And to an extent, it's worked. They do the Manchester United comeback thing because they've got world-class attackers, but there's no tactical plan. And if you come up against a manager like Jurgen Klopp is one of the best in the world, and a team like Liverpool is one of the best in the world. They're going to be taken apart like they are today, and you cannot have results like that if you're a club like Manchester United. You just can't. And like I said right at the start of the show, it's been coming. Like there's no surprise for me. Manchester United getting beaten like that by Liverpool, it was so predictable, and that's the worst thing. That's the most damning thing for Solskjaer. For whatever it's worth, they're closer to mid table with like the underlying numbers, um, as opposed to like the strictly the points because they've had a couple fortunate results with the um the Wolves game, as well as um, I think there was one other where they got a bit lucky, but yeah, they're like at, as much of the league table doesn't look bad if you're actually paying attention, as which you would hope the people running Manchester United are like this team isn't <laughs> it's just it's not that good, 
And, and and they should be. They have talent. They very clearly have talent, even if it's not perfectly distribu- distributed. It's they have talent. They shouldn't be this bad. And it is not evenly distributed. And so I do think that some of this doesn't come down to Solskjaer because uh, I doubt he was really banging the table to bring in um, Ronaldo or Sancho or or Varane himself. I, th- I think that's all probably happening above him. But yeah, it, w- with players like that, it looks so much worse when you aren't succeeding. Although. Like we're saying, the, the 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 squad building was not ideal, but he is not making the best of the ingredients that he currently has, that's for sure. Uh, so yeah, we'll see within the next week or so what happens with him. Uh, both of you know, the people listening don't, uh, that we were going to talk about uh, Daniel Farka, a different manager who suffered a different big defeat. And I was just curious between the two of them, who do you think will lose their job first? See, both these teams are weird because they both operate really differently to most clubs with their manager. Um, I think I'm not confident either of these, but I would think Solskjaer is more likely to lose at first because this is more outside of the realm of what United are expecting. Whereas Norwich, I'm sure they went into the season being like, okay, there's a decent chance we go down. And we, we are aware of that. Like they did last time. We're aware of that. We're going to take that into our thinking when we make decisions and go from there. Whereas like that may entail Fark keeping his job and them wanting to have him take him back, take them back up again. Um, whereas United, I, I don't think they thought them being like not a clearly top four team was in, but that was in their thinking going into the season. Yeah, I think, um, it's, it's a strange one Norwich because I think when they got promoted last time, it was a bit of a surprise, maybe like, I think it was against the odds. So it was whatever the long-term plan was at Norwich, it was kind of ahead of schedule. Um, I hope that's fair to say. So it was like a free hit in the Premier League. And if you get relegated and then come back, then they're still ahead of schedule, I think. Sort of similar to when Burnley got promoted for the first time under Owen Coyle. Like, no one expected it that season. So then when we got relegated the next season, everyone was like, eh, well, Burnley were kind of a lock to be in the bottom three. So I think two years ago, Norwich were maybe in a similar spot to us. Um, and I think it was kind of admirable the way they stuck with Farker. I think a lot of teams just go, well, we're in the Premier League now. We're going to get relegated with this guy. So just roll the dice and get someone else and see what happens. Um, but I think they were right to stick with Farker. And obviously they went down. Everyone expected that. And they came back up in some style as well. They didn't just get promoted. They got promoted easily. So I think Farker's deserved, he's deserved that, that patience. He's got money in the bank. They don't seem to have learned anything from last time. Um, they're still so naive at the back. Like this weekend, losing 7 0 to a Chelsea team that had no strikers. Remember, all the build up to that game was, oh, striker crisis at Chelsea. They've got two strikers missing. So they were forced to play a £70 million attacker who'd scored the winning goal in the Champions League <laughs> final. He was their striker. Like, oh, man, I wish Burnley had a striker crisis like that. God. Um, <laughs> they still won 7-0, so like, you can only imagine what that would have been like if Lukaku had been available, if Timo Werner had been available. Like, even Timo Werner might have scored in that game. That's how mad it was. Um, <laughs> but how far does the patience go? I think that, that the point Dan was getting at is like, how far do you let it go? If you're Norwich, do you accept another relegation and try and come back next year? I don't know. Like, at some point, you have to try something different. I don't think they've learned from last time. But on the flip side, you look at Norwich's squad and 
are there any Premier League players in it? There's not that many. I don't feel like being a no, yo-yo club not. is not a bad outcome for Norwich. Like that's not bad. I don't know. I mean, obviously, mm. last year they had they had Boondia last year, right? And he was probably the best player in the championship, maybe by a distance, and they lost him. And any team that loses their best player is going to be an adaptation. But they don't seem to have invested particularly well. Last time when they got up, they spent almost nothing. It seems to be basically the same this time. And I know club finances are difficult because of the pandemic and so on, but I think if you're Norwich, what's the point in Norwich getting promoted if they're just going to get battered all the time? Mm. What's the point? Why get promoted if you're going to make this poor an effort of it? So, yeah, I kind of feel like if if you're going to lose in the manner that Norwich lost to Chelsea, and it's not the first time they've been turned over like that this season, I think, again, the manager is on his last legs, but when you look at Norwich's squad, I don't think they've got good players. I don't think they're going to stay up no matter who's in charge. So there's maybe a case for just leaving it in Farker's hands and trusting him to come back. But I think the emotional scarring of a season like this, like last time, I would say it was a free hit last time. They got relegated and everyone expected it. But this time... And they started all the well. Pukes, they played good football yeah. for a bit. Puki and Buendia were doing yeah. business. The last, the last time, Puki was at least scoring goals and you felt that Norwich could at least score. This time they're not scoring goals and they're conceding a lot. Like, no league in the world where you can be that bad in attack and defence and not be terrible. Uh, I think at the moment they're a lot to be relegated and badly. I think the question with Norwich now is can they avoid like being a historically bad season? Is there going to be a derby? Is there going to be a Sunderland where they're like 12, 13 points? Because you look at that team and there's no goals in it. There's no defensive solidity. And I think Farker should go because I don't think he's learned anything from last time. But I don't think anyone else would do any better either. So mm. it's a really tough situation for Norwich. Yeah, it's interesting. And I do think they, they made a much uh, stronger go in the transfer market this time. I think Rashika and Solis and Sargent were all relatively well uh, received. And Ozan Kabak, oh, they still obviously lost their best player. They lost their they best did. player. They did, for sure. Also, um, Sargent's not good. Well, <laughs> hey, hey don't, don't don't let the secrets out there. Uh, uh, <laughs> among people to make um, people think Americans or American footballers are worse than they are. <laughs> he's yeah, he's not. He's not fantastic. I, I think a lot of those players were probably championship level. I think I think of Rashika as, as being higher higher than that in terms of his ability. But yeah, it has definitely not worked out for Norse this season. And Jamie, you're absolutely right. It's not just that they've struggled scoring and have conceded a lot. They've literally scored the least and conceded the most, which historically not great to have both of those things happening at your club at the same time. Uh, All right. I want to cycle back a little bit to that Manchester United uh, Liverpool match because on the other side uh, of Manchester United's general woe was Mohamed Salah being absolutely brilliant again. Uh, ends up scoring three. Is that right? I don't know why. I just second yeah, guess myself. I only remember two. Okay. Mohamed Salah ended up scoring a hat trick, which took him clear to now be the highest scoring African player in the Premier League ever. Uh, so I was just curious from you guys, historically, what, where do you think he ranks among some of the best African players to, to applied their trade in the Premier League? Uh, he's top two and he ain't two. Uh, he's he's uh, he's very far <laughs> clear in my opinion. Like he's the more interesting conversation may actually be where he ranks in the terms of just overall Premier League players take off the modifier. Mm. Um, like he is 
unbelievable. I like these are his stats since coming to Liverpool. These are his seasons: thirty-one non-penalty goals, ten assists; twenty or nineteen non-penalty goals, eighteen assists; sixteen goal non-penalty goals, ten assists; sixteen five, and now he's up to was it nine and five in nine games. Like this is historic stuff. He is unbelievable. He has not had a down year. He's been, and he's even. I mean, this is a tiebreaker at best, but he's been fit every time. The lowest minute total he's had is. That's a jinx now. He's going to get hurt. But so far, the last minute total he's had is 2,800 minutes. Like, mm. he's been fit every season. He's been unbelievable every season. He's had, like, it, there aren't that many seasons in Premier League history better than his debut season when he scored the 32 goals and 10 assists. Like, he's one of the best players ever, much less African players ever. Yeah, I mean, Dan's obviously done more research than me in preparing for the podcast, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it didn't come up with any any outstanding alternative candidates. You're looking what Yaya Torre, Didier Drogba, Maxwell Corne. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's difficult to argue that Salah has not had a bigger impact than those three. I mean, Corne will presumably go on to be better than Salah. I think everyone. <laughs> but is he even that. better than Dwight McNeil? I mean, these are the questions yeah, we have to ask ourselves. I mean, this this is difficult. I mean, I know on the podcast I'm known as like Dwight McNeil's number one fan, but I'm, I I could be tempted to switch. I could be <laughs> the new fan club. But yeah, I think like Dan says, the thing with Salah is it's the consistency. Consistency of always being available and always delivering. The thing with Salah for me is that he can look like he's playing badly and he'll still produce in terms of numbers. He'll create a goal, he'll score a goal. And you might watch a full game of Liverpool and be like, well, Salah didn't really do much today. And he might still have scored two goals because mm. he's a killer. He's a killer in front of goal. The fourth goal, I think it was the fourth goal, the one just before half-time at Old Trafford. Um, he didn't even celebrate it. Like, it was just so normal, scoring to go 4-0 up at Manchester United. It's just normal. I'm Mo Salah. This is just Mo Salah things. Um, there was an article. He was in the Guardian by columnist Barney Renee. And he was saying we need to find a way to talk about how good Mo Salah is because his brilliance is still understated. I mm. if if Mo Salah was doing this for Real Madrid or Barcelona, then people would be talking about him being the best player in the world, or one of the best of all time, or the best of his generation. However, you want to qualify it. But he's doing it in the Premier League. He's doing it in front of our noses every week. I think Klopp was asked last week, is Salah the best player in the world right now? And Klopp was effusive immediately. Yes, no one can touch Salah at the moment. And I watched him do that interview and I was like, it, it, it feels like a leap to say Salah's in that company, but he is. He's that good. Mm, yeah, he it's it not a leap. He's that good. He does it all the time. The goal he scored was it last week against, and yeah, yeah, it was Watford. Fair enough, it was Watford. But the skill to create the space and then the, the the incredible finish, and he just does that all the time. He's so consistent. It's a consistency for me that's so impressive about Salah. He never seems to have a game where he doesn't turn up. Um, there's no game where Liverpool don't perform and Salah doesn't do anything. Like he's always there. He always produces. Um, and I think you talk about how Liverpool became such a force. Signing Mo Salah is 
the key part of that. You can talk about what Jurgen Klopp's done at that club. You can talk about signing Allison and Van Dijk with the Coutinho money, which transformed the defence. But if they don't have more Salah doing what more Salah does, they don't win the Premier League. They don't win the Champions League. They're probably still fighting to qualify for the top four every year. More Salah has taken that team to a whole new level. And I, I find it incredible that they're still seemingly squabbling over his contracts. Like, you're Liverpool. You have probably the best player in the world right now. Just pay him what he wants. Like, whatever contract length he wants, give it him. Whatever wages he wants, give it him. He's worth every penny to Liverpool. Mm, yeah, hard to agree with any of that. He's been excellent. And I think he falls in the category that... Uh... Well, not not to start this debate over again, but like Kane and De Bruyne, where they were both so consistently good for so long that like the excitement's gone. Like we're always looking for like the next sexy thing in football. It's just like no, they're here and they've been really good for a really long time. Obviously, Kane dipping and and uh, De Bruyne is still not the same after his really terrible injury. But yeah, it's 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 shocking how consistently brilliant Salah is, and I, I think maybe people are just bored of it almost. But I agree with you that, that if he was at a place like Real Madrid, everybody would be talking about him being the best in the world without without hesitating before saying it, like you said, where it, it sounds weird to hear. But I think we're just there now that, that he's, if not in that discussion, that right now there is not a better player in the world than Mohamed Salah. Um, I wanted to finish up with this section by talking to you guys about back three. So obviously it became very on vogue when Antonio Conte came because the best way to play against it is to play it. It's a whole thing. Uh, but right now we're seeing a bit of a renaissance in it right now. Over half the teams in the Premier League have done it at least once this year. Six have done it more than any other formation that they've churned out this year. So I was just curious, are we seeing like a bit of a renaissance with the back three? Um, I mean, this is kind of football. It's just that they'll see uh, things will go in waves and things will be in vogue and out of vogue. And so I guess for the time being, we are seeing a renaissance of it. Um, it'll last for... I don't know how long it'll last for some time and then it'll go away again. And you know, everything goes back and forth, but at the moment, yeah, we are. And um, you have Chelsea doing it a lot. We have Brighton doing it a lot. Um, and those are two um, Chelsea are top of the league right now. Brighton, while they suffered heavy defeat to city le- or yesterday, they're still quite good. Um, and they're not alone in doing it. Uh, so yeah, for the moment we are definitely seeing a renaissance for back three. How long it'll last. I don't know. It's like every other trend in football, it'll last for a certain amount of time. Then it won't. Yeah, I think um, it, it sort of became trendy, didn't it? That Conte season, Conte came in and said, back three, it's the way to go. And lots of other managers who can't think for themselves basically yep. went, I'm going to do a back three. <laughs> and I think at that point, it was definitely like a trend. But I think tactics are sort of, it's it's cyclical, right? Like things come into fashion, they come out of fashion. Teams work out that one plan works against other formations and that becomes popular for that time. Um, and I think the plus points of the back three are, are obvious. It makes you more stable at the back and gives you a platform where if you're playing three at the back, you can maybe get two up front rather than one if you're playing like three, five, two kind of thing or three, four, three, where you've got the Y forwards who are, are basically strikers. Um I think it's an interesting one to talk about, actually, because there's been some talk um, around Burnley. Is is this like something that we could try and do? Obviously, defensively, we've not been great this season. Um, and it's the list of things that we've not been great at. Um, 
but centre back is one of the few areas in the squad where we have strength in depth. So I don't know if it's our fans thinking this is just a way to get more of our good players on the pitch, but it's not necessarily a bad attitude to take. I think now Nathan Collins has come in during the summer. Ben Mees missed a few games because of injury and COVID. Um, and Collins has done well. So people are now saying, should Collins be in the team full-time when Mee's available, in which case probably has to be a back three. Um, but the only time we've really done the back three was the start of the season two, three years ago when, again, we had sort of a, a, a surplus of centre-backs and Dash decided this was the way to go. And it was a disaster, really. It lasted a few games. We lost most of them, had to switch back to the, the normal back four. So I think I think it, it is kind of trendy now. I don't know if it's as trendy as it was when Chelsea had that season under Conte, like you say, Kevin. Suddenly everyone seems to be doing back three for a time. But I think it is. It comes in cycles. And I think managers just need to think about the same things as always. Does this benefit my team? Is it going to make us harder to beat? Is it going to make us more likely to be dangerous in attack? Don't just do it because it seems like everyone else is doing it. Uh, if Burnley were to play with the back three next week, I would hope that it's because Dice thinks it's just the right way to go, not just this is trendy right now. You know what I mean? I think managers can get sucked into kind of like groupthink where they all start doing the same things just because it's popular and everyone's talking about it. And I think the best managers set the trend rather than follow it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. Uh, Dan, obviously we've seen the back three a bit from Arsenal over the past few years, just on and off. Do do you think that that would uh, lead to an improvement for your side this year, or do you think you'll kind of stick with the back four? Uh, No, I I think we'll stick with the back four. Um, We don't really have a right wing back for it right now. Um, I guess Maitland-Niles could fill in there, but um, I don't think it would help. I think it'd be... um, I think it'd make us worse. Um, I think Tamiyasu is a good right back, but I think he'd be a pretty bad right wing back. He's not that great mm. going forward. He's a defensive um, right back to begin with. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah he's he is a he is a competent he's competent on the ball for a center back. He's barely passable for a right back as a right wing back. That's not good. Um, not to, not to say I don't like him. I think he's good, but I that he would be a bad right wing back in my opinion. Um, and then we I think we actually have a pretty good balance of attack, whereas that would make it harder because then, then you you know one of the bombing lacks it up top, Saka. Or you have a bombing wide and Lacazette up top, then you only have Saka and you can't play one of Odegaard or um, ESR and or Pepe. And I just don't think it worked for us, um, especially considering as it's been with the entire Arteta era, attack is more of the issue than defense for us. So, gotcha. All right. Well, we will take a quick break and then we'll be back with more club specific questions for each of our guests. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, and we are back. Dan, we'll start with you talking a little bit more about Arsenal. Uh, as you know, when you re-signed Aubameyang, everybody thought it was a mistake, <laughs> including yourself sometimes. Um, and it was largely being dunked on, but he has quietly turned things around now. I think it's four goals in the last five matches for him. Just curious if if uh, we're now wanting to take some of those comments back or if it was still the wrong financial decision, even if he's starting to perform a bit better on the pitch. No, it's still the wrong decision. Not taking it back at all. Um, I mean, uh, I can't say exactly what would have happened because this is like, you know, it's, we're talking about a situation that didn't happen and wasn't, it was never on the table. But I, if we, if having a bombing and black assets, wages on the books is what prevented us from getting Tammy Abraham then that's just a game-changing mistake. Um, that would have, I think, being able to sign Abraham this summer would have been huge. Uh, I know he started well at Roma. I haven't checked in the last couple weeks, but I think he's a very talented forward, and he would have been, that would have helped our attack significantly and helped turn our squad age over a lot. Um, so just even if he's good, unless that's leading to meaningful results, as in like, getting you know back into the top four or even like top five um i don't think that's worth all that much um especially if it's prevent if it's the opportunity cost is the opportunity to bring in you know better younger attackers where we because we really need to turn the squad over and we're doing a good job that with the uh, integration of smith rowe odegaard uh Sambi, uh saka etc but um we're we're we cannot do it up top because we have a bombing on those wages and we're not going to be able to move move him on those wages because no one's going to want to pay him that which is fair i wouldn't either i don't um so yeah as much as he's last season was worse than i expected him to be i expected a drop off not quite that big a drop off but even him being good is not good enough to justify the very large wages and specifically the opportunity cost having those wages on the books um is yeah, well, uh, um, certainly you're enjoying the goals when they're happening, but I can totally understand. I am. He's a from... good play. He's a good player. I don't blame him. Like he's fine. He's he's fine. He's a good striker. Um, but it's just you know the uh, having those on the books really makes it hard to do other things and move on from the bombing era, which is something we need to do. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think uh, he's kind of a remnant of an era that Tottenham are trying very hard to recreate, which is. Uh, you're really good for a few years, then keep trying to string that success along instead of actually ever doing a rebuild. And so you just kind of end up dragging with a few good players at a time, but the rest of the team yep. maybe not. I mean, I saw a few people comment, it's crazy that we're still playing um, a bombing and like I said together when that was like what was happening in Wenger's last season. <laughs> you know, just that work in Wenger's last season, it's still happening. Yeah, that's pretty funny because it wasn't that many years ago, but it definitely feels like what would have been a demarcation point in an era. But it does sure seem to be what's happening. Um, I very unfortunately for my um, optics on this show, but very delightfully for my own personal feelings, I ended up missing the show the week that Arsenal beat Tottenham. And there was a lot of talk about it kind of being a resurgent point for Arteta, that being like the turnaround for his kind of managerial tenure at Arsenal. Obviously, things not super great since then, but a couple draws, some wins, 
currently sitting in 10th. Did you view that as a turning point or will he just kind of continue to get up and down results? No, I did not see that. I don't think there can be any single match turning point for, I mean, like when, when you go back and look at it, maybe you can say, oh, that was the turning point. But in the moment, we're so far from where we want to be. I don't think you can call any single match a turning point in that moment. Um, we played well. Uh, it was a good performance, and we've had some bad performances since then. But our performance against Villa actually on Friday is probably our best of the season. But um, like not a great performance against Brighton. In fact, a bad performance against Brighton. Not a good one against Palace. Like this is just kind of who we are. We'll play well some weeks. We'll play poorly other weeks. Uh, it's who we've been under Arteta since he got there, and it, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Just because we had a very fun and very enjoyable uh, win over Spurs. But like <laughs> no, as much as that was great in the moment. Uh, I don't want to extrapolate that over too much when there's so much evidence to the contrary. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, what are the expectations now? If you are expecting to just have some good results, some bad results, are, are you just kind of hoping for European football of any sort? Or are you kind of hoping to avoid that still so that you don't have that kind of as a distraction midweeks? I think the expectation is to get back into the Europa League. Um, yeah, I, I think those are the expectations. My expectation is just like be a better team. Get them, get continue the squad churn and get more young players integrated. Um, but in terms of actual, more tangible expectations, yeah, Europa League, top six. Gotcha. All right, well, we'll come to you now, Jamie, to talk a little bit about Burnley. First of all, we do have to start off by talking about Max Cornet, who was terrific, obviously the two goals on the day. I uh, was just curious how he's been settling in and, and how you ended up organizing some of those attacking pieces, which I think we discussed last time you were on. Yeah, it's um, it was a really good game on Saturday. Actually, on Saturday, I think two all was probably fair, but both teams gave it a really good go. Um, I think the the most like surprising thing for me is how quickly Burnley have just become Maxwell Corner FC. Like it's just already a one man team, and I've talked on the podcast so many times about how Dwight McNeil's our best player. He's not even close, and he's not anymore. Like we've got a new best player. It's like having the shiny new toy um, who just goes off injured every week. But <laughs> you can't have everything right. I, um, obviously, absolutely delighted with the impact he's made. I mean, a stat came up on TV the other day where since he got in the team, we scored three goals in the Premier League and Max Corne has scored all three goals. <laughs> so, um, already people are talking about an over-reliance on him, which... For me, it's a conversation for down the stretch. Um, I'm quite happy now that we've just got a player that we can rely on. If it's an over-reliance, then I'm not really worried, but we can rely on Maxwell Corne, which is great. Um, I think the way that we've used him, though, to, to answer the question that you actually asked is quite interesting because I don't think Dash has quite worked out exactly what he wants to do with Corne. When we signed him, a lot of people who clearly don't watch a lot of Liga and, and let's face it, who does? Um, but he was described widely as a left-back, which was always nonsense. He basically played a left-back because they had no left-back, so he was filling in there. He's an attacker. He can play on either side. He can play up front. Um, and we've had Joy playing him up front, but the versatility is what really helps us because we've got one of the smaller squads in the Premier League. We need players who can fill different positions. And what Corner gives us is pace and attack, something chronic that we've lacked 
for years and years and years with need and pace and attack. And a clinical edge in front of goal, like he basically had two chances in the Southampton game and took them both. Um, and I think it's it's really important that he's settled so fast because obviously we are struggling and we haven't won in the Premier League yet. But Corne does look like the real deal to the extent where people are already talking about the over-reliance. They're already going, oh, January, Africa Cup of Nations. Oh, he's going to be away for these games, these games. Let's worry about it when it happens. At the moment, let's just enjoy. Maxwell Corne is a Burnley player. He's playing really, really well. He looks like he's really enjoying playing for Burnley, which is nice because seeing someone who's clearly having fun and having the time of their life is just such a... It's a revelation because the players so often look like they're just utterly miserable and hate their lives. So the fact that someone's come to the Premier League and is just bossing it and looks like they're having a great time is fantastic. I think he plays with a really good attitude. Uh, some people are talking about him not tracking back enough at the weekend, which is a very, very Burnley fan thing to do. A guy scores two goals, right? And you would draw two all, so he's basically carried your team. And they're complaining that he didn't do enough defending on the day. It's just a classic Burnley fan. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure where he actually fits. So long term, we've used him out wide, we've used him up front. Like he switches between the two mid game. Um, I mean, if everyone's available and playing well, then probably up front is the best place to put him. You want your difference maker where they can make the most difference, right? So, like Dan talked about playing Aubameyang on the left wing. I don't think that makes sense. He's their best finisher. He should be in the box. And at the moment, Corne might be a left wing back. He might be a winger, but he's our best finisher at the moment. So, you want him around the box where he's going to score goals. So, I would be playing him up front. Gotcha. Yeah, it was interesting watching him and uh, your previous best player, McNeil, because McNeil started on the <laughs> right, but he popped up on player. the left yeah. a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, may- maybe the solution is that you just kind of keep everybody kind of moving around and just kind of causing confusion. But, yeah, you- you'd like to probably see him up front more, especially since uh, your strike force has combined for a grand total of one goal this year, which is probably yeah, not, not what great. you were hoping for. Um, I also wanted to talk about, sorry, uh, James Tarkovsky, who has been the subject of so many reports of him being Newcastle's preferred first signing under the new Saudi regime. Uh, And then he goes out and then makes just a a dumb mistake, which could have happened any week, but it's happening right now while all this speculation is happening. So I was just curious, what do you think about that? Do you you think maybe some stuff is going on in his head right now? Or or do you think it was just a simple mistake? and, And what do you think his future will be with Burnley? No, I don't think it's a mental thing at all. I think um, it was a bad mistake, and I'm not going to excuse it because he would put his hand up and say it was a mistake and it's completely his fault, that goal. But I said the first game Collins played, Collins was playing on the right of the defence, Tarkovsky on the left. and It might seem like a, a minor, unimportant thing, but one of our back four is good on the ball, James Tarkovsky. So you play him on the left and he's right-footed. He's going to have to pass the ball on his left, right? And he passed the ball on his left straight mm. to the opposition striker. Like for me, it was a mistake that's been waiting to happen. There was no one showing for the ball in midfield. Yes, he could have just booted it downfield. But he's looking for the pass because he always looks for the pass. I just don't understand why he's playing on the left of the, the defence. It weakens both sides for me. Like Collins is new to the Premier League. He's new to the team. But you're not asking him to do anything extraordinary, just play Collins on the left. He can be Ben Mee, head it, block it, kick it, do all that 
basic defender stuff. And Tarkovsky just plays where Tarkovsky's good. So I felt a bit sorry for him. But again, not excusing what was just a terrible mistake that probably cost us the win in the end. But I don't think it's a mental thing at all. He's probably been one of our best performers this season and it's been understood since the summer that he would go at the end of the season. Um, which is why I think it's curious that there's all these reports about him being the first signing at Newcastle, which is great for them if they're not going to make a signing in January, which would be weird since they've apparently got all the money in the world to spend. Why would they not the spend <laughs> Yeah, but like, they're probably going to spend some of it in January. But all these reports about Tarkovsky seem to ignore the fact that at the moment Burnley and Newcastle are relegation rivals, right? So why would Burnley sell their best defender to a relegation rival in January? You're weakening your own team and strengthening a direct rival. So I don't think there's any chance whatsoever of that happening. I think everyone understands it's going to be Tarkovsky's last season of the club. His contract's up. Made it clear he's not going to renew. Um, but even if Burnley are in the same sort of hole that they are now, it doesn't make any sense to sell one of our better players hmm. to a rival. Um, so that might be something that happens in the summer, but I think take Saturday's mistake out of it. I think Tarkovsky's been admirable in the way he's approached the season. It says a lot that he's worn the captain's armband when Ben Mee's been out. Dash clearly still trusts him. He's a leader on the pitch. And as far as I'm concerned, it was just like a one-off mistake that, again, I still think is because he's been played a little bit out of position more than anything else. I think Tarkovsky is crucial to our chances of survival, which is why I think the the, the odds of us selling him in January are just absolutely minimal. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely fair and, and good to hear that you're just going to kind of stick with him through the year and then... You know, sad that, that you're letting him go, especially with uh, Ben Gibson, who's the other player we forgot to mention. We don't have a choice. Going to Norwich. <laughs> we can't but... not let him go. Like, we'd love him signing a contract, but he's not going to do it. So yep. Totally. Uh, all right, we will wrap up that and then head into Player Watch, where I wanted to talk to you guys about something really uplifting, like who's the player at your club that's been the biggest disappointment this year? Um, Probably Ben White. He's not been great. He had a good game against Villa, but outside of that, he's been pretty bad, and we spent a lot of money on him. Um, I I don't really know why, because even like the second he came in, people were talking about how he's a project, and it's like, then why did we just spend all this money on him? Um, I I appreciate buying at least a young center back who is good on at least theoretically good on the ball, but he really doesn't look all that comfortable playing as a center back. I know we played in Brighton's. Uh, weird little three in the back system where he was kind of like shuttling play up and down uh, on the right, whereas now he's in a back four and he doesn't look all that comfortable with it, which is not good. Um, he's been really, uh, he's been quite bad. Um, so hopefully it gets better, but it's really not looking like a good start for our big 50 million pounds uh, signing over the summer. Yeah, and Jamie at Burnley, who's been on the disappointing side? Oh, why do you want me to start, right? <laughs> <laughs> probably a few. Uh, the outstanding candidate is probably Nick Pope, which is a real shame because he's been so reliable and consistent for us, but there's, something's not right with Nick Pope this season. And I think it's partly because the defence doesn't look good and protection from midfield isn't ideal, but it's, it's kind of making excuses for him. He's conceding goals that he shouldn't. Uh, like the first goal against Southampton, 
watching it live, it's a free header from a corner thing. Like, it's just a goal. But you see replays, and it was basically straight at him, and he's kind of tried to block it and almost moved out of the way of it. It's not something you would expect from Nick Pope. Um, the game against Leicester recently, both goals, it wasn't great for them. <laughs> All goalkeepers make mistakes to an extent, so you forgive them, but they have to also make some saves <laughs> to balance out the mistakes, and he's not really doing that either. Um, and we know that distribution isn't Nick Pope's strong point. His kicking's probably up there with the worst in the Premier League. His throwing also seems to be getting worse as well. He was normally quite good throwing the ball, even if he couldn't kick it to save his life. His throwing seems really bad now as well. So I don't know how much of it is hangover from the injury that meant he missed the Euros, or if it's psychological because he missed the Euros. He's lost his place in the England squad now, whereas. He seemed to be set as number two to Jordan Pickford for a long time. He was playing uh, like World Cup qualifiers against teams that England were certain to beat just to give him a game. And now he's not even in the squad, so he's clearly fallen out of favour at international level. I don't know how much that's affected his mentality or his confidence, but at the moment, you would say Nick Port's one of our worst performers. And historically, for the last three, four years, Pope has been one of our better players. So. A real problem for us. We've kept one clean sheet this season, and defensive solidity is one of the things you would associate with Dyches Burnley. And if we are to move up the table and away from relegation danger, that's something that we have to reinstall. And as much as it pains me to say, because I've backed him throughout, I've always said Nick Pope's one of the best keepers in the league. He needs to get back to that form because at the moment he's one of the worst keepers in the league, not one of the best. Yeah, ab- absolutely shocking performance from Jamie here on the podcast. Belittling Neil, <laughs> talking about Tarkovsky leaving and down talking uh, Nick Pope as well. Um, that I must haven't be tough. mentioned Neil. I haven't. Bro- I didn't break. I didn't bring him up once. <laughs> I, I tried to tease you with him a few times though. So that's, that's on I'm me. Concerned this might be a body snatcher situation. <laughs> <laughs> could be. Could be. More on that <laughs> next week or something. Uh, we'll wrap up with match previews. Uh, Dan, Arsenal are going to be facing Leeds. Uh, you think this will be one of the good ones or one of the bad ones? And will we know in the first five minutes? We might know in the first five minutes, but we'll never know until before until the game gets started. Uh, Leeds have been pretty poor this season, and we are and um, we are at home. It is the EFL Cup, so it depends on what kind of team we're going to put out. But um, uh, we're we're deeper than Leeds, so I'd say it's more likely we'll win than we'll lose. But we're a pretty inconsistent team, so you know who knows. Fair enough. <laughs> and then, uh, Jamie, you have Tottenham midweek in the cup as well. Uh, historically, not a great cup team. You just said all those really mean things about your best players. Uh, how do you think this is going to go? <laughs> yeah, apart from all our good players being terrible, I'm really positive about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a funny one for us. Like, this is what, the fourth round of the cup? And we're mm. still in the cup? Like it's it's You're just it's confused. I don't like it. I don't understand it. Yeah, but um, I think the matchup is is quite suitable because the Spurs seem to be trying to lose in every competition that they can lose in at the moment. I can't imagine you really want to be in that competition any longer. We seem to try to lose in the last round and accidentally beat Rochdale. So yeah, I don't know. I think it'll be one of those where a lot of changes probably. Two, three first teamers on both sides. We've got home advantage, which is nice. Um, I still remember the 
the semi-final in this competition, what, 12 mm. years ago when the ridiculous away goals rule, which I'll never, ever get over, cost us going to Wembley as a championship team. So um, I think it was probably only Jay Rodriguez or Ryan Jay Rodriguez scored in that game, sent it to extra time. It should have been a winner, but the rules were wrong. So Jay Rodriguez will certainly be motivated and he, he scored four goals in the last round against Rochdale. So watch out Spurs because Spurs are about as good as Rochdale, probably. <laughs> also, it's a revenge game because we tried to go in for Jay Rodriguez back when he was at Southampton, but and it didn't end exactly, up working. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, Jay Rodriguez revenge game. We're calling it here. Also, there was I, a I admire Jay Rodriguez's um, mental just remembering that far back if he's thinking this is a revenge game. <laughs> <laughs> the level of pettiness is something I aspire to. Yeah, it would be pretty impressive, to be honest. Also, there was a really interesting moment in the Southampton match where uh, Cork came off and Jay Rodriguez came on. And they yeah, were like, yeah. they were both at Southampton. I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. So... You know, the Premier League is a pretty fun place in general. Uh, but we're done talking about it today. So if you guys would like to tell folks where they can find you or anything, we're, anything you're working on, now's a good time. Yeah, I'm Dan. I'm still an Arsenal fan. You can still get me on Twitter at the underscore jersey underscore fits. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's, it's always a pleasure to come on and do the podcast. Um, if you've not had enough Dwight McNeil takes for one week, and, and there's not been enough, I don't think you can subscribe to the Non and Ever newsletter, which I normally write. I'm going to via Substack. It's substack.nonandever.com, probably. Or you can just follow me on Twitter at Jamie Smith Sport, and I tweet the link to it like 10 times a week so you won't miss it. <laughs> yeah, definitely check both of these guys out. They are terrific, as you just heard, for the better part of an hour. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter at Kevroff. You can find the show at EPL Roundtable. And of course, you can find the podcast feed by looking on any of your music or podcast apps and just typing in EPL Roundtable. All right, well, thanks so much to you two for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure. And folks at home, we hope you keep listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.